0: Entertainment companies, but Walt Disney lived, breathed, ate it. He was all about creating happiness. And, you know, he had his TV show that many families tuned into every Sunday night, The Wonderful World of Disney, or whatever it was called, and creating Walt Disney World because he, amusement parks at that time were seedy. Places that moved from city to city with people you didn't really want your kids around, they weren't family oriented. And he said I wanted
1: to be- Welcome to Innovation and Leadership where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. And this is part four of our mini series, the Be The Go To mini series with Teresa Lina. Uh, I think the message that I'm getting the most, and I'd love to have you weigh in on more, but is this idea that so many of us business owners, we like to think how different we are, but really our customers see us as kind of a me too brand and or at least some aspects of us as a me too. And if we want to be the go to the pe- you know the number one the 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 group the individuals that people are looking for that we need to be doing this different, and that by being truly differentiated it it lets us protect our margins. It makes me think about Warren Buffett, how he says he wants to buy a business with a durable competitive advantage, you know like a castle that's got high right. walls and a moat around it right
0: yeah exactly um,
1: well, I'd love you to have you weigh in on any of those thoughts and and I'm excited about this topic about power brokers as well,
0: okay. Yeah, so uh, to understand where power brokers fit in, just I'll give just a quick snip, a quick recap of what the Apollo Method covers. So there are four key phases to the Apollo Method for market dominance that I discuss in the book. The first is launch, where you really decide what it is you want to own in the market. What problem are you going to own, and what's your unique approach for solving that problem that provides such superior value that customers are going to be willing to pay you uh, far more than they normally would number. The second piece is the ignite phase. So this is where you uh, put yourself out there in the market and lead a movement in the market around the problem and what they need to be doing about the problem. So you're igniting the market. And that's what we're going to come back to in talking about power brokers. The third phase is navigate, where you actually walk your talk, your whole purpose here is to navigate customers along the journey to solving the problem and re- and realizing the outcomes that you have been promising. That's a lot of your sales and marketing and product development and delivery. And then the fourth phase is Accelerate. And that's where you accelerate to stay ahead of competitors who are inevitably going to come try to copy you and also stay ahead of market changes, because, of course, things are constantly changing in our markets and with our customers. So those are the four pieces. That's what you're really trying to accomplish. That's what gives you your high walls and your moat. So going back to the Ignite phase. So in, in launch, we've decided, here's the market problem we want to own. Here's our point of view on why it's a problem and what needs to be done about it. And here's our unique approach for solving it. In Ignite, before we get out there, you know, the mistake that a lot of companies make is they get out there and they just try start to try to s- s- throw the stuff at the market. So they put out articles, they do, quote unquote, content marketing. They write articles about this or that. And there's no overarching theme. So in launch, you had decided your overarching theme is your point of view around what the problem is and why there's a problem and what needs to be done about it. And in going out into Ignite, everything revolves around this theme. And instead of starting with just anybody who will listen, the key here is to focus on the small number of people and entities in your market that have the most influence and power to bring others along with your point of view. So almost every industry has just a handful of power brokers. These are maybe a dozen at most people who they know everybody. they their tentacles of their network spread uh, far beyond what we could possibly see. In fact, the, the metaphor I use is tree trunks with vast root systems. So the person is the tree and underground that you cannot possibly see it is this root system that extends very deeply and very wide to other trees, and they all interact with each other. In fact, just yesterday, somebody was telling me about a book, I think it's called Overstory, about uh, how trees communicate with each other, that there's actually communication that goes on between them. And it's like that with uh, these power brokers. They know each other and they know everybody. So if you can sell this power broker on your point of view and your unique approach, getting them to accept and believe that, yes, this is what companies need to be doing, they can propel you out into the market far beyond what you could do on your own and save you months, if not years of effort, trying to get the rest of the market to embrace this point of view and get on board with it. So that's, that's the key strategy is identifying who those people are and then getting to them somehow. Now, those power brokers, frequently, they're individuals. And then, of course, within the media, we have certain media that are particularly influential in our market, And then there are events uh, that are particularly influential. Now, there's a whole strategy. I talk in the book about the media food chain. There's, uh, and this goes actually for events, too. There's there's a food chain of media outlets and events that you really you need to understand how that works in order to work your way up because very rarely do we just leap into The Wall Street Journal or leap into Forbes or the New York Times or a TED conference. So there's, it's important to understand that there are feeder publications, blogs, and events that then the next level of media and events, I'll just use the word media to cover all these out, these outlets. There's, there's the little niche, uh, very specialized blogs and trade publications and events that the nerds go to. And those events are then the next, think of fish. So the next bigger fish watches what's going on at those little outlets and they get their ideas from there. And then the next bigger fish gets their ideas from the next level down. So, a lot of times it's more it's more productive to focus on who those feeders are, so that then you get on the radar screens of increasingly more uh, powerful outlets. I talk in the book about the innovation adoption curve, which. I I don't want to get into it too much here, but it has to do with how people embrace new ideas and new innovations. And there's a progression to it. And there's a progression in your market that you have to think about. And there's a parallel progression in the media. And so you're targeting the the outlets that are speaking to the people in your market who are ready for what it is you're talking about. So this is something that I really recommend. If you even just bought the book to read this section, it'll be more than worth your time and money because understanding this really gives you a key to how to play that whole game and save yourself from wasting tremendous time, energy and money targeting the wrong people at the wrong time and targeting the wrong media at the wrong time for getting your message out there and likewise for the power brokers
1: yeah i love it i think about so i was excited we're actually in forbes today oh wonderful congratulations yeah um, and it's because you know we we started with this podcast with just like the fanciest people i knew right Mm -hmm. and then once you get cool people on the show it's easier to get other people because they want to be on that list with the billionaire CEOs and the Pro Athletes and the Navy SEALs or whatever, right? And uh so one of my favorite authors, Shane Snow, who wrote the book Smart Cuts. I had him on, and then he's actually the one who we got this idea for the miniseries, like what you and I are doing, right? So he's uh-huh. the first miniseries we recorded. And and he's a you know he's a journalist for Wired and Fast Company all these magazines, but he's regularly in Forbes. So part one of our miniseries came out this morning. So he just wrote about it in Forbes. Hey There you go. Did a mini series today. It's on lateral thinking. Please go to Jess Larson's Innovation and Leadership podcast if you want to to listen to it, you know. And I think about, you know, I think it's episode 421 is this first one of Shane's, right? And so it was this like, it was very much like the bricks in the wall Uh along the ways over these past 400 episodes to get to this level. Yeah. And and yet Wall Street Journal still feels a little out of reach at this point. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But I just mm-hmm. have to have this faith in what you're saying and as it continue to level up at, at some point, you know, maybe we will be considered to do stuff with them or in be covered there or whatever, right?
0: Yeah, a lot of times in a market, you can actually reverse engineer what that progression needs to be to get you into your uh, Mount Everest of your media or, or events. So you can actually... You can see, you know, what are they covering? What's the Mount Everest covering? And then where did that company or story appear before that? And usually there's this backwards progression down to these little niche publications. I noticed this years ago because I would be I would be um, reading, you know, technology, nerdy technology uh, blogs and and magazines and so forth before magazines. This is when magazines still existed. But I would see that, you know, I would see how certain companies in Silicon Valley, like, you know, when I first heard about them, they were just a startup. They had just gotten funded. Maybe my friend was the CEO or one of the founders or head of, you know, the CFO or what have you. And I'd I'd notice where they were getting their publicity, where, where they were starting to get talked about. And, you know, it would start out in you know, publication A. And then next thing I knew, they were getting picked up in publication B, which is higher in the food chain, that reached a broader market. Next thing it was publication C, which reached an even broader market. And interestingly, what I kept noticing is that a lot of the companies that were featured on the cover of Fortune or Forbes, within months, if not a year, of appearing on those in those publications, they were having trouble. They were having problems actually. And I started realizing that by the time those guys found out about the company and were willing to write about it, because they were so risk averse, they weren't willing to write about unknown companies. By the time they were willing, those companies had already peaked. And we're kind of on a slightly downward trajectory, and they were missing the good stories. Now, I I ran into this at Stanford. I was working with the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, and I had Forbes call me and say, hey, we want to know about the latest, you know, we have this technology section of our publication now. and We want to hear about, you know, your latest and greatest companies that you guys are dealing with. And so, you know, I'd I'd reach out to our alumni and our students, and I'd find these really cool startups, and I'd send them over to the Forbes writer, and she she didn't understand what they were doing, and they were too new, and so she wouldn't cover them. She'd end up writing about some, you know, some fancy new house cleaning product or, you know, something that a lot of uh, your average reader could relate to and next thing you knew she you know she'd missed these great stories because these would be companies that would turn into rock stars you know it would be the instagrams the pinterest the yeah. you know and so they you know, they um they totally missed it and i i really came to understand this whole notion of the technology the innovation adoption curve even it came into even more clear light and just how it ties to uh, the risk profile of people who are at the different phases: the innovator, the early adopter, the early majority, etc. So, again, that's another reason. If you even just read about that part in the book, those passages, you'll get a tremendous education that you can apply to whatever it is you're doing. You
1: know, I love it. I, it makes me think that we need to be more systematic, though. Like. About four years ago, I had a friend, she used to be the manager for a big band called Imagine Dragons. And she was she had these up and comers who played like, you know, in front of 80,000 fans at Bonnaroo and some big ones called, band called Von Gray. And so we put Von Gray on the show and talked about their approach to things. And she told me that she's basically managing the band through online video chats. And how she didn't really like Skype because that's had so many problems, but she loves this company, Zoom. Mm. And yeah. she's like fanatical about it, right? She's like yeah. the call quality's better, everything. So I just reached out to the CEO and, and invited him on the show. And he was this a great episode. Talked about growing 140,000 users before using any advertising because of just like relentless customer service and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here we are now later. He's worth $20 billion and everybody knows Zoom, right? Right, right. As you're saying that, I'm thinking like, you know, I want our brand, Greystoke Media, to become a higher profile brand. I would like us to become a power broker, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe I need to be thinking more systematically of, you know, how can I get in, you know, instead of having the Eric Yuan, the CEO of Zoom as like a lucky accident, how could we like be systematically approaching this? So that three years from now, we have more of those type of experiences because people are really impressed right now when I said, hey, we have billionaire CEO of Zoom on the show. You know, like it sounds fancy. At the time, people didn't really care four years ago, three and a half years yeah, ago, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. No, it's in fact, that's what the Ignite phase of the methodology is all about is a systematic approach to igniting the market around what it is you're doing and your point of view. And I I I lay it out very clearly. There's some very specific steps and some very important concepts that you need to understand because everything revolves around them. The technology, the innovation adoption curve is one of them. It was actually it it was actually born out of uh, back from the 1920s and 30s. They were trying to figure out what is the pattern that occurs in the in, in how farmers embrace new agricultural techniques. And they started looking for the pattern and how that works. Like what what causes a group of farmers to start to finally adopt these technologies? And it it had to do with you know where they would hear about them in their local community center, standing around talking to each other. They could usually trace it back to one particular. Farmer who was kind of the first person to really get their get the, embrace it, and then what caused the next two or three farmers to embrace it, and so on. And there was a particular psychographic profile of that first farmer, and then a psychographic profile of that next set of farmers, and so on, going up the curve. It's a bell curve, and there's a, a certain profile, and it has to do with. It's a combination of how risk averse they are and how desperate they are to solve their problem and how willing they are to put up with some sloppiness and imperfection in order to be the first to be doing something. So there's a whole section in the book. I I talk, it was one of the first concepts I learned in my very first marketing 101 course in college. And Everett Rogers codified this after decades of people writing about it. He codified it in a book that he wrote in the, I think it was the early 1960s, Diffusion of, of Innovation. And then Jeffrey Moore kind of popularized it in the technology world, writing Crossing the Chasm. And I use it as a framework for talking about how you methodically going about igniting a market and also penetrating a market, which builds on some of what he, what Jeffrey Moore talks about in his book. But yes, there is a methodical approach. And the more you can successfully be methodical about this, the more time and effort you can save yourself with unnecessary activities and uh, activities that will get you there a little faster.
1: Yeah, I'm interested in more of this this idea of power brokers and connecting with them. Any any patterns that you've seen successful there?
0: Yeah, first of all, the hard one of the hard parts is understanding who they are. I was telling you earlier about how one of my clients is one of the most networked people I've ever encountered, and again, that tree trunk metaphor. His root system extends across industries, across worlds. It's so extensive and diverse. You would never know it by just knowing him or looking at his credentials or looking at him on LinkedIn. First of all, he barely is active on LinkedIn. He, he doesn't even use it. But his, you, know, you could get to anybody through him. So in your industry, the key is understanding who are those people. And it's a little tricky to figure out who that is if you're not already plugged in. But that's that's one of the first steps is really try to figure out who are those people. And if you don't already know them or don't already have those relationships, look at who you do know. Leverage what you have and figure out who are the people that that I know who fit into that power broker category that um can help me and then you meet with them and you get them you you talk to them about your point of view and your the issue going on in the marketplace get their ideas get them engaged and hopefully get them invested in the need to solve this problem and if they really believe oh my god yeah shoot we're you know one of one of one of the the c board members i worked with as a chief marketing officer at this one company he said He said, there are two reactions we want to get from people. One is, where have you been all of my life? And the other one is, oh, we got to have that. So, you know, that's if you have an offering and a point of view around something that elicits those kinds of responses from people, they will tell other people. So another another key book, and I draw on his concepts in my book, is The Tipping Point which is you know what does it take to start a start a movement or start or ignite an epidemic, and you have different profiles of people in that, and one is a connector, so it's the kind of person who proactively puts people in touch with each other, so you want the person to be a connector and you want them to be a salesperson, so that's another profile, which is you know they will go out there and sell it for you, so those are two things you're after. In the personality of the power broker. We all know people who are well connected, but they're not very proactive in putting people in touch with each other. They're not necessarily that generous. If you ask them to make an introduction, they might do it, but they're not the kind of person who says, Oh my God, you need to meet so and so. Oh, I, I," you know, they, they don't feel that compulsion to spread the word, to evangelize. And so you want that power broker to be somebody who's also, in fact, a less powerful power broker who's a connector and a salesperson who will evangelize for you is way more valuable than a super well-connected power broker who is not going to be proactive. So you want that person to have those personality characteristics. So you want to look through your network and see, you know, who are those people and then Talk to them about what it is you're doing, get them excited, get them enthusiastic, and then get them to start telling other people.
1: Yeah, it's such a good point. It makes me think about one of my business partners at the fund. We've had her on the show. Her name's Lindsay Hadley. and. Her her clients are like Hugh Jackman and his wife's charity and Kevin Bacon's and his charity and the, the Vatican and the UN. She's got these absurd, like wow. fancy clients, right? And it's because she built up. She, she threw a John Legend concert in Australia that raised $118 million for polio from Bill Gates and the Australian government and this stuff, right? She's a producer and then... And I think about like observing her and she is wildly generous. Like she's always trying to scratch somebody else's back first Mm -hmm. and they're in like this non-transactional way. And then people will do anything for her because it wasn't a transaction, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, I think about this show, like this is maybe my attempt of that is, is try to scratch somebody else's back first. You know, there people are paying PR agencies and stuff to try to get them on higher profile podcasts and shows And so when I could reach out to people and say, hey, do you want to come on the show when normally they're paying five or 10 grand a month to somebody to try and get that, you know, this is like me giving them some free attention for something they're trying to get attention for is like my attempt at at that trying to scratch their back first. Uh Um, But it makes me like ask myself, what else can I do? Like, how could we do more than that?
0: Yeah, well, a big part of this whole approach, the whole approach I talk about in the book, is you're there in service to the market that you're trying to, you know, you want to be the go-to. Part of that is you are you 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 have a higher purpose. You're not just there for transactional, hey, I want to sell, you know, this many widgets you're, you really are invested in that market. And that's one of the reasons why people start to trust you is they know that you're really out for what's good for the market. You're on the lookout, you're studying it, you're investing in it. You're, you know, you're trying to bring them along and that's, that's how you come to own the market quote unquote air quotes there is they really associate you with that issue, that, that challenge. You know, you look at somebody like Walt Disney, you know, there have been endless cartoonists and entertainers and entertainment companies, but Walt Disney lived, breathed, ate it. He was all about creating happiness. And you know he had his TV show that many families tuned into every Sunday night, The Wonderful World of Disney or whatever it was called, and creating Walt Disney World because he amusement parks at that time were seedy places that moved from city to city with people you didn't really want your kids around they weren't family oriented and he said I want an amusement park I can take my kids to I want a place that's family oriented and that's why he built Disney World so he was all about kids and happiness and bringing out your inner child and he 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 accomplished that in many different ways but you could you could tell with him that it was it was coming from a genuine place and that's critical in implementing this approach in a market, is you're really devoting yourself to that market. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing for the people. Uh, you-
1: but it makes, it makes me want to double down on it even harder. You know, like that idea of somebody's name comes up and people know exactly what what they're all about, or that issue comes up and this is the first name that comes to mind. Right. You know, and it makes me question myself, Are we, are we narrow enough? Are we defined enough? And are we, you know, relentless and obsessed enough? You talk about Walt Disney level obsession, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we really thought about it in those terms, but we probably need to kind of mm-hmm. a thing. Mm-hmm. So, well, this has been really fun. This has been great. Any, any kind of, you know, besides sending everybody to Apollo any other issues or topics or or things you want to leave a note on here?
0: The the big thing is, uh, you know, I do think reading the book, you're going to get something out of it. I really, there are certain uh, mistakes that I think a lot of companies are making that I address in the book that I I really want people to understand and and start fixing. Even if you do tiny little pieces of what I talk about, you're going to get so much further than you are today. I'm talking to all of your listeners here and, you know, the key is really positioning yourself so that you can charge what you're worth and you can deliver exceptional value and get paid for that value. But the value you're delivering so far exceeds what people are paying you that they're thrilled to pay it. So, you know, there are times when I tell the client, pay me what you think this is worth to you, because if it's not worth that to you, I, I don't even feel good about taking your money. You know, let's make this something that thrills you because in the end that's that's what you know we should all be here for and if you're doing that ultimately you are going to be earning much higher margins than you are today and you must have those high margins get fixated people get fixated on revenue they need to obsess over margins you can you can grow your way out of business not making high enough profit margins and costs are never going to go down permanently. You're always going to be having to pay people more. Healthcare expenses are going to be higher. I mean, so you've got to obsess over margins. And if that's the only thing you take away, is shifting your focus over to margins and finding ways to increase your margins, that will, to me, be a you know a win. Well, I,
1: maybe my final question, and I, I think about this. Helping that group at Accenture grow to 850 million a year in revenue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you attribute that to, or what, what as an outside observer, what made they not recognize about what you guys did to accomplish that in a you know arguably crowded space of consulting?
0: Well, uh, you know, I I part of coming up with the Apollo method for market dominance was reverse engineering what we did. You know, I I looked at what was it that we that we did differently. And it was those four pieces. You know, we got very focused. We became obsessed with solving a particular problem in that market. And we had we had a strong brand name in the accounting world. We were relatively unknown in the consulting world. And our name actually worked against us in the telecommunications industry because at that time, The go-to for all things technology was an organization called Bellcore, which was the the old, this is for, you know, only older people would even remember this, but there was a time when AT&T was the only phone company or telecommunications company. They had a research arm and that research arm broke off to become Bellcore when they broke up the communications industry, got rid of the monopoly. And so, at the time, if you weren't Belcor, you had no credibility in technology in that industry. So we were really fighting an uphill battle, and we did it by changing the game, which would take a little bit longer than we have right now to talk about. But we, when I later, when I looked back, I, I laid, you know, the Apollo method of market dominance partly came out of. taking apart what we did. And we it was four key pieces that led to our success.
1: Well, maybe just quickly, then can you tell us the short version of the problem and the point of view you guys took that was different?
0: Yeah. So at the time, uh, tell the the what we wanted to own was billing and billing systems. Back then, in fact, still today, in many places, they were just ancient technology and they were just transaction processing systems. And we said, you know, billing will be your key to competitive advantage in this industry. And so we changed the definition of what billing systems should mean in that industry, and we elevated the significance of them to a strategic asset, whereas they had just been basically an accounting function. And so we said you have got to start thinking of your billing system as a, as your key source of competitive advantage and differentiation and you know that's your future and then we said the other bigger story this is kind of analogous to mark benioff talking about software is dead is back then a lot of the technology in the switches that operated the telecommunication system were proprietary and developed by the equipment manufacturers and we said that tech, that information processing in your industry is going to become, is going to move to general purpose computers. It's no longer, it can't any longer be proprietary. You won't be able to change fast enough. You won't have enough control over your destiny. You have got to shift to general purpose computing and general information processing. And that was a big mind bender for that industry. And it also played to our strengths but it was genuine. We, you know, we really meant it. It was clear that that's where things needed to go and it took the industry a while to get their heads around it. But that was kind of you know, one of the big ideas and big points of view we had is you're going to have a big problem in a competitive environment. You're not used to dealing in a competitive environment where other upstarts are coming along and matching you on functions, features, customer service, et cetera. You have got to shift. And so we pounded on that message over and over and over again. And we yeah, used great. the Apollo method for market dominance to make <laughs> yeah. our game. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks for all your time here.
0: Thank you. This was really fun. Thank you.
1: Good. Okay. Bye, everyone.